This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. We'll go back to Ingrid Dean in just a moment, retired police detective and author of Spirit of the Badge, 62 Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. Uh, once again, just wanted to give you a programming note. Next week, that is uh, May the 12th, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our resident paranormal investigator, researcher, author of uh, over 70 books, uh, will be here. And she has compiled and edited Another Fate Presents a book. This one is called Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. And I don't know about you, but I love to swap stories about uh, Bigfoot. And uh, this is a book just chock full of them. So Rosemary will be here for the second hour to discuss that. And in the first hour, uh, L.A. psychic to the stars, uh, Sloane Bella uh, will be here. And uh, when she comes on, always fascinating. She doesn't come on. We don't do readings. We don't have people calling in saying, you know, tell me what's in my future. She just talks. Uh, we have a great conversations. And uh, she's going to share some pretty dark and sinister stories out of Hollywood and what's going on. Sort of the uh, the uh, the underbelly of Hollywood and things that she has experienced. But we'll we'll talk about some other things as well. Sloan Bella, one of my favorites. All right. Um, back to Ingrid Dean. And... Um, you know, we've talked about uh, um, uh, symbols and signs and synchronicities. In fact, that's a, that's an, uh, a whole sort of section in the book. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about uh, a story that um, really touched me. It's uh, it's called A Trooper's Debt on Christmas Day. Can you share that with us, Ingrid? I love that one. That is one of my favorite stories in the book. Mine too. And uh, it is a... Another story of synchronicity and amazing coincidences that take place with no no causal relationship, but end up being extremely meaningful later. And the story starts out about how a man becomes a trooper, uh, even though his mother wants him to be a minister, pastor, and his father wants him to be a surgeon. And as a young ad- adolescent, in fact, the uh, the man receives a, a unique ring from his father that symbolizes what a surgeon might wear on his finger. So the man uh, eventually follows his own dream, and he becomes a uh, Washington state trooper, despite his parents' preferences. And then the story kind of fast-forwards uh, two years into his career, and the trooper is dispatched to a vehicular uh, accident, uh, where he ends up saving the lives of a husband and wife while their little boy is watching from the back seat of the the vehicle, which is pretty mangled. Um, the trooper uh, stops the mother from bleeding to death and also saves uh, his father. And so the little boy, who is six at the time, uh, says a prayer to God to uh, please help his parents live and 
he also notices the unique ring that the trooper's wearing. Then the story fast-forwards to uh, 20 years later, uh, when the trooper's much older, but still on patrol, and he has just been told that his uh, daughter and granddaughter were in a very bad accident, and it doesn't look like his granddaughter's going to make it, uh, who he just, you know, is the love of his life. And so the trooper, you know, ends up sitting in the hospital waiting room uh, just after being told the situation when these two men uh, start walking through the room and are talking, and one man suddenly stops talking in mid-sentence, and he says, he says, it's him, you know, the, the trooper sitting over there with the ring. And it ends up being that the little boy in the mangled vehicle from 20 years ago who watched the trooper save his mother's life uh, was that man, and he's now a pastor of the largest Baptist church in Spokane, and he sits down next to the trooper and actually recites the same, you know, heartfelt prayer for his uh, daughter and granddaughter while his younger brother, who he was walking with, uh, is one of the best surgeons in Washington, and he goes immediately to operate on the trooper's granddaughter. So interestingly, the surgeon uh, would have never been born if the trooper had not saved the pastor's mother in that accident um, when he was a little boy. Right, right. And the trooper's granddaughter lived. And so it's a heartwarming story of synchronicity. Um, and, and you'll see more of those synchronicities uh, when you read it. Right. Um well, I, I just want to, um, I want to dive right back into another story here. Uh, sure. And it's called Murder 101. Yes, I remember that one. That That's told by a detective. Uh, and it's a, a case that he solves about a man who gets shot six times. And the man is like a pillar of the community. And there are no, absolutely no leads in the investigation. So it almost looks like the perfect murder with very little evidence except for these uh, 38 bullets um, that were used to kill the man. And uh, what I find so endearing about the story is that the detective believes his intuition comes from the Holy Ghost, and he shares how he listens for the Holy Ghost. And, and whatever you want to call intuition, you know, whether it's a gut feeling, ESP, psychic phenomena, or the Holy Ghost. I mean, personally, I you know I believe something extra does exist that we can all draw upon for advice in all aspects of our lives. So anyway, this detective solves this case with virtually no leads, uh, but through his personal connection with spirit and the messages that he receives in his head, and um, he has uh, unexplained urges that lead him to solve the case. Uh, which are all embedded in the story. It's, uh, it's a great detective story. Uh, since this book came out, and it's been out, you know, quite a few, a, a few years, do you have now uh, police officers and, and first responders now reaching out to you, even unsolicited, saying, because they want to unburden themselves with something that's happened to them? I have a nice collection right now, but just not quite enough to, to do a second book. Um, and yes, they do reach out 
uh, through my website, spiritofthebadge.com. Um, I need a few more stories, so if there, again, are listeners out there, whether you're a police officer, EMS, firefighter, um, I could use um, another 15 to 20 stories to complete another book. Well, great if you contacted me. Well, hopefully um, those people that will, uh, will reach you through the website. Give us that website again. Spiritofthebadge.com. Spiritofthebadge.com. Uh, All right. Um, I want to talk to you about um, death. And, I mean, it's not necessarily a story in the book, but I'm, I'm wondering about maybe personal experiences. I mean, have you... We, I've, I've talked to a number of um, people that work in ERs, and they've been present, obviously, at, at a death. Uh, and I've had very strange experiences. I mean, we hear about near-death experiences from the perspective of the person who has died and sort of come back, but also people who witness deaths have near-death experiences. Sure. Have you, have you ever had anything like that happen to you or someone, maybe a, a colleague? I've had a near-death experience, which is not in the book Spirit of the Badge. It's in the other book of True Police Stories of the Strange and Unexplained, which listeners can still buy from Amazon, but uh, in the used section, because the publisher is no longer printing the book. But you can still purchase it as a used book. And um, it's the last story in the book. And it's about uh, a situation in which I get involved in a chase uh, with a truck. There's three people in the truck that look uh, pretty young, but they're going over 100 miles an hour. And I get a radio call that the truck is about to go through my area. And so I pull ahead of the truck, uh, and there's another patrol car behind the truck chasing it, and our intention is to box in the vehicle and gradually slow it down so that nobody gets hurt. And uh, unfortunately, um, I got rammed. Uh, The vehicle uh, totally disregarded our intentions and um, rammed me in the right rear bumper, and we were going over 100. Um, I was trying to slow, slow that truck down, but they didn't care. And so I got rammed, and the patrol car spun around several times and then flew off the roadway and landed upside down between two trees. Mm. What's interesting is what I went through in just a few seconds. Um, I call it a near-death experience, even though I didn't get hurt, and I walked out with just a few scratches I still experienced what people sometimes call the Akashic Records, yes. where all of a sudden your, your whole life and maybe before, <laughs> before your life, other lives start um, uh, going through your mind. There were so many things that happened in just a few seconds, because I really thought that I was going to probably die because I was going so fast, you know, uh, trying to, to slow down that vehicle. So the story is the last story in um, the published version of Spirit of the Badge. And what what information did you access from the Akashic Record? Uh, I thought I saw prior lifetimes that were of no real significance. You know, I wasn't anybody famous or 
you know, Queen Elizabeth, none of that. But one took place in Scotland, and I could hear uh, bagpipes. And um, another one was just like a, a common uh, type um, uh, factory worker, like in in the twenties or thirties. And uh, it, it was the images were interesting because they weren't part of this life. So I uh, kind of assumed later that they could have been the beginnings of what people call the Akashic Records. And imagine all of that in just a fleeting moment yeah. as the car is careening out of control. We'll, uh, we'll take another quick time out, come back and discuss further. True police stories of divine guidance, miracles and intuition, and again, your phone calls, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And this has been an eye-opening introduction to the human side of law enforcement. Retired police detective Ingrid P. Dean uh, has been with us for the entire program. And her book, Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and intuition. And um, uh, there's a story in, again, this is in the section called Lessons of the Heart. It's uh, my day in court. And this involves uh, someone who wanted to commit suicide by police officers, uh, which is really, a, it's a horrible thing, not only to, to, to imagine someone wanting to take their own life, but wanting to do it at the hands of police officers, to lay that on a police officer, practically daring them, begging them to shoot them. Tell us about this this story involving this um, Allen individual. It's, it's a definitely a heart story. And um, uh, two police officers uh, go to a safety welfare check uh, on a man who placed a suicide-like voicemail on an answering machine. Uh, the officers find him, uh, but he does have a gun, and he's threatening to shoot himself in the mouth if they don't get out of his house. Then the man staggers towards the officers and starts yelling in a very slurred voice, you know, get out of my house. If you don't, I will kill you, and actually points his weapon uh, at both officers. They're looking right down the barrel of his gun at point-blank range. And what's so interesting is that the officers um, picked up intuitively that this man was probably mentally ill, and um, they were somehow able to find their way out of the house rather than shooting the man. And they could have done that, but they did not. And uh, they get out of the house, they hide behind a tree, and then the man actually shoots at them, but hits the tree. So medics eventually arrive, and they um, coax the man out of the house and uh, take him to the hospital and give him treatment. But the man is later arrested for felonious assault on a police officer, uh, which is, is understandable. Those, those officers could have been killed. And during court, the defense attorney says to the officer um, who's on the stand now, he says, well, you know, if my client really assaulted you and pointed a gun at you, 
you know, why didn't you shoot him? You know, aren't you a trained killer? You know, you're trained to shoot anyone who puts you in danger, right? You know, aren't you trained to shoot when a gun is pointed at you? And so the defense attorney um, was not very nice and um, ended up saying, you know, if my client really pointed a, a weapon at you and he was so dangerous, then why didn't you shoot your gun? And the officer is, is shocked, you know, by those questions. And he eventually stammers out and he says, you know, I didn't take this job to shoot anybody. Uh, and you could have heard a pin drop in the courtroom. And the officer looks straight at the jury and he says, you know, my job is not to shoot people. You know, I took this job to help people. Uh, my job was to save this man's life. And uh, the jury apparently believed him because the man was convicted of felonious assault. Right, right. So it's it's a heart heartwarming story about what we go through sometimes. Even when we make really good decisions, sometimes we still get attacked, whether it's by the public or a defense attorney, you know, in court while we're testifying. What is that old saying? No good deed ever goes unpunished. <laughs> That's right. Ingrid, uh, let me ask you a personal question. I don't know if this is out of line, but I, I, have you ever had to, to, to shoot someone? No, thank God. You know, I, it's just a terrible thing um, that sometimes happens uh, with officers, and um, they, they never forget that, whether the person was a, considered a bad guy or not, because we all have, you know... Um, good things and bad things about us. We're, we're all human beings, and when we actually have to shoot someone, um, it's terribly painful. And I don't think the public realizes the trauma that goes with that. Even when we have to shoot, you know, what we call a bad person, because that person's still human. We're all human, and we all have, you know, all sorts of issues inside of us. Everybody's, you know got their own set of, you know, problems and issues to deal with. So most police officers feel really bad if they ever have to shoot someone. Let's say hi to William in Toronto. William? Hi, are you there, William? Hi. Hi. Um, I've got a lot of things to say. Hopefully something will be uh, of use uh, here. Your guest requested stories. Uh, uh, uh I'd like to start with uh, the Toronto Police Services and, uh, and and the way they do things, and it'll probably probably develop into a story for your guests uh, that might be of interest. Um, Wonderful. Uh, the way police work now and the way police work uh, 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 that your guest is, re- is saying is completely different. Uh, you know, Pastor uh, Russ Dizdar was a police chaplain. He has a million stories uh, to tell, like what your guest is telling. I've read uh, his book. They're all very interesting. Now, about the Toronto Police Services, uh, they work uh, with uh, uh, brown noser perps, uh, 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 prominent oh. lawyer. Uh, okay, William, this isn't the show to talk about, you know, your personal issues with the police department and, and as justified as you may be, but we're here to talk about the metaphysical. Uh, we're talking about paranormal encounters with the police. Uh, so, you know, maybe save that that for another time. But thank you for calling in, uh, nevertheless. Goodbye, Richard. Goodbye. Right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you anyway.
William has called us before, and he has some interesting stories, but this isn't the time. Uh, Spirit of the Badge, 62 police stories of divine guidance, miracles, and intuition. Ingrid Dean will stay with us. One segment remains, and we'll come back, and uh, perhaps we'll have time to work in a call or two, and maybe even share a story or two. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. All right. We couldn't uh, let this evening go by without talking about uh, police encounters with uh, unexplained phenomena, UFOs, perhaps. Tell us about the encounter back in uh, 2002. This is uh, uh, Holland, Michigan. Ingrid? Yes, this is a, a story that's being told uh, by a retired police officer who had what he believes to be a genuine uh, encounter with the classic gray four-foot-tall aliens that are commonly seen in the uh, scientific uh, science fiction movies and books. Uh, the ones with the large black almond-shaped eyes and the long slender arms and legs. Um, according to his story, they communicated with him uh, telepathically, and they, they said they needed his help. Uh, the officer remembers uh, feeling uh, paralyzed, uh, standing in his backyard and looking up at a huge craft that was hovering over and felt like he already knew these people but had forgotten like he had met them before. And he remembers two other humans uh, who he did not know who were standing near him who were also uh, appeared to be paralyzed and breathing heavily like, like he was. And the next thing he remembers is a uh, thunderous sound and uh, a two to three hundred foot wide opening in the night sky where the craft goes into and then the sky closes shut. And then he says next thing he knows, he's back inside the house, and uh, he draws a picture of the craft uh, with his daughter's crayons. And he, he initially did not share his experience with his wife, but his daughter tells him the very next day that she woke up and saw a lot of bright flashing lights uh, outside the roof dormer window. And instead of going back to bed, she went to sleep on the living room floor because the lights uh, scared her. So um, it's, it's, it's an amazing story, and I think that it takes courage for officers to share <laughs> this type of a story because, you know, people have various opinions on uh, whether UFOs exist and aliens and extraterrestrials. So I found it um uh, very interesting, and uh, put it under unexplainable phenomena. Yes, well, uh, Gary Heseltine, who has been on this program a number of times, actually has a, uh, a huge database in the uh, the United Kingdom of uh, just filled with police encounters with with UFOs. Um, and what is remarkable to me is, you know, when we have these sightings from uh, first responders, but particularly police, because they are trained observers. Right. Uh, and to me, they are, uh, along with airline pilots, among the most credible uh, witnesses. So right. um, there's a, 
an amazing story in here. It's, it's actually a little grisly in parts because it involves a, um, a man who, who, um, tried to kill his wife. Uh, two police officers who responded to the call were also shot. They were, they were down. Uh, and essentially, um, kind of a SWAT team were called in because they decided that, uh, and this woman, uh, the wife was, was bleeding to death. Her arm had been blown off. And in order to save her, to get her out of that house, they had to take a life in order to save a life. Take us uh, through this amazing story called The Amazing Shot. You know, it is amazing because it really reflects um, the way many police officers think uh, when they have to make that decision to shoot someone. And the officer uh, from this team had a lot of thoughts going through his head that he talks about. And intuitively, um, uh, he, he doesn't want to shoot the man. Um, for one, the man has Alzheimer's, and sometimes when you're in the progressed stage of that disease, um, there's a lot of anger, you know, that festers up. So he's ill, and um, he sees the man a couple times looking through a small window of his trailer, and he has um, uh, a couple opportunities to shoot him, but he's struggling internally on whether to do that or not. But as you said, he's already hurt a woman uh, very badly. And so um, he says a prayer that he doesn't um, hurt the man, even though he takes the shot. Um, and the end of the story is, is remarkable. It's very heartfelt because he takes the shot, but somehow um, the bullet... Uh, uh, shears off of the the window and does not hit the man. And this is someone who is an expert shot. So he considered it um, a miracle, and that's why the story is called The Amazing Shot, because um, actually the bullet goes through the window, but it hits the man's shoulder, so it's not fatal. And um, everybody is okay and and you know the man gets medical care and the the trooper feels a whole lot better but he considers that um uh, an answered prayer right uh, because he he really didn't want to kill the man but he had they had to do something before the man killed his wife and I was correct. There were two officers also injured. They were they were down, correct? Yes, I forgot about that part. Well, yeah, they were because yeah. you know when you when your colleagues have been injured, uh, I mean to show that kind of restraint in that situation is remarkable. That's what I thought. It is remarkable because there's so much going through your mind and heart in a situation like that, and uh, uh, it all ended up uh, positive. So. Um, that's what makes it heartfelt, is that he, his wish came came true, and he didn't kill the man. We just have time for one more story. Swimming out of body. That That is, that's a good story, too, and it's told by a uh, sheriff's deputy who comes to the aid of a, of a drowning man. Uh, it takes place at night. And the man is in the middle of a, a very, very cold northern Michigan lake, and he's screaming for help because his canoe is uh, tipped over, 
and he's uh, freezing to death. So the deputy shares how uh, he goes into the water and how his own body goes into shock from the freezing water filling up his uniform and and his whole uh, respiratory system nearly shuts down and he has an out-of-body experience. So, you know, this is an excellent swimmer who grew up in Florida, but he had never experienced such intense cold weather uh, in northern Michigan in late November. So he shares about his uh, survival instincts and everything that he does to save that man, and it's a, it's a great story. Have you had a, an encounter with the paranormal? I mean, we talked about your, your, your incredible uh, prescient dream on the morning of 9-11, but what about the paranormal? Well, um, I, I have certainly seen um, apparitions since I was young, um, and, and it did carry through in my police work. Um, one particular um, incident that occurred, I, I consider it paranormal. Um, I, was, I had just gotten home from work, uh, from patrol, and it was thundering and lightning, it was a um, very early morning hour. Uh, I fell asleep on uh, the bed in my bedroom, which had a wooden frame around it, thank goodness, because this huge uh, ball of lights came through the window and sat right in front of me like five feet hovering. And, and the ball of lights looked like little cut-up pieces of tinsel. Um, like from a Christmas tree and silvery and they were making a sound like, like, like mm. rats, you know, it was, it was, it was weird. And so I gripped the wooden sides of the bed because I intuitively knew it looked electrical. So, um, the name of the story is the electrical guest. Um, it's in Spirit of the Badge, and um, uh, it hovered for a good uh, five to eight seconds, which seemed like eternity because it was at least three foot in diameter and um, uh, shimmering. And then it, it's, it's like it has intelligence, is, is what it looked like. It's in- like it was looking at me. Ingrid, people and will have it to... just went into the wall and disappeared. Wow. <laughs> and they'll have to read the uh, the book to get the full story. Ingrid, yes. thank you so much. Spirit of the Badge, it's been a delight meeting you and speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. All the best. Ingrid P. Right, Dean. Thank you. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. Keeping an eye on the New World Order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 
1-866-740-4740. And we will get to uh, phone calls after the top of the hour, but I would love to hear from uh, police officers talking about how perhaps you used inter- intuition in your job or perhaps an experience with a remarkable synchronicity or maybe an encounter with the paranormal. And uh, we don't u- need to use real names. Uh, you, you, you can remain anonymous if you'd like, but uh, we'll, we'll do that again after the top of the hour. Ingrid Dean stays with us for the full two hours tonight. Author of Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. Before we proceed with this remarkable story called The Bone Lady, just tell us uh, how we can get a copy of the book. Uh, certainly. Um, please go to my website. It's called Spirit of the Badge, all one word, uh, dot com. And it has my email address and a post office box address to order the book. And uh, the cost um, is normally uh, $10 per book, but um, uh, plus shipping and handling. But if listeners mention that they heard tonight's show, I will gladly uh, give a discount and uh, charge uh, $7 for the book plus shipping and handling. So um, I wanted to add, too, that if there are any police officers out there or first responders who are listening... Um, if you're willing to share a story with me of an exceptional uh, human experience that you um, uh, experienced on duty, um, I will provide a free book in return for your story. Um, and if it's, um, you know, if it's published, um, uh, I'll give you that book. Terrific. All right. Well, maybe yeah. we can help you start Volume 2 of uh, Spirit of the exactly. Badge right here in the program. Thank you for that uh, generous offer for my listeners. Oh, and uh, can they get a, an autographed copy as well? Sure. They, um, if they ask me when they order, I'd be happy to do that. Terrific. All right. So we have this case of a snowmobile uh, with uh, two riders going through the ice. And uh, they bring in a, uh, the... Um, the, uh, the the cadaver dog, I guess, I think that's what they're called anyway. Uh, they sniff for dead bodies. And just a quick aside, uh, I was out in, in Death Valley a couple of years ago. I was filming an episode of um, Mysteries of the National Parks, and I met someone when he had a three-legged uh, cadaver dog. And what he, he was actually working on uh, the Manson uh, case because they, they were there are still, I think, bodies that Charlie Manson himself had, had murdered and disposed of in the desert, and they're still looking for these bodies, even though Manson has now died. But what he told me about this dog-sniffing, or this cadaver-sniffing dog, remarkable, their sense of smell. I mean, the body could be fully decomposed, but just a, a few molecules in the soil, like six feet down, is enough for the dog. I had no idea that they were yeah. able to do this. Okay. It's amazing. I, I saw a documentary myself about um, a dog that was trained to sniff for uh, cancer cells. That's how sensitive dogs are and how good their smell is. And um, uh, in the documentary, you know, they did an experiment with five people laying, you know, on the floor, and uh, they knew who had cancer and who did not, and the dog picked them out right away. That's how sensitive they are. They are absolutely remarkable. It's amazing. Remarkable yeah. creatures. So the bone lady is Sandra, and she has the uh, the uh, the dog. 
Yeah, and this story is a rather unfortunate one because it is told by a detective um, about this famous woman who is known to uh, find bones and bodies in the water with her cadaver dog. And you mentioned the two snowmobiles going through the water. It's just um, a short example of uh, one situation in which the officer uses her and she's wrong where she says, no, you know, the snowmobilers didn't go down here. I can see by the way the dog's acting, and um, there's there's no bodies here. Well, a week later, you know, bodies show up at the shoreline. So she was clearly wrong. And that's the first red flag that the detective sees, that, like, something's just not right. And it's it's a kind of a gut instinct or an intuitive feeling at that point. So he goes on to share of another time when his department utilizes this woman again uh, with her dogs in order to try and locate a woman's body who's been missing since uh, 1980. And through various signs, signals, and, um, you know, eventually uh, incredible intuition or divine intervention, the detective figures out that the woman is actually planting bones at the crime scene, and that she obtained these bones from a university medical department. So she gets caught in the act as they're out on a, on a crime scene, and it's just a very unfortunate um, when these things happen. It, it, you know, it doesn't um, give a good reputation for other people who, who use those dogs ethically and wisely. Why did Sandra do that? What was, I mean, she was getting paid, I guess. That's the idea. Well, I, I thought from a psychological perspective that um, she felt under a lot of pressure to um, be successful and please the officers. That was the feeling that I got. Yes, she got paid, but um, I thought that she, she may have had uh, some uh, therapy issues. <laughs> that needed to be addressed in order to go to that length, you know, to um, please, please investigators. And, so and very unfortunate. And the claim that, that dogs can, can smell dead bodies even underwater, is that true? Um, I've heard that it is, but, you know, if the body is um, 40 feet or 50 feet underwater, you know, I... I <laughs> You know, I can't believe that it would be possible. I, I'm no expert, but um, I have heard of cases where it's relatively uh, shallow water and uh, the dog can can smell something. So um, I, I do believe, you know, it's possible. But, um, you know, we have to use common sense in addition to, you know, good police work in order to, to solve cases. Right. Uh, utilizing dogs. And the other thing, I wasn't aware that they sort of contracted out that job, that they went to somebody who had a cadaver dog. I thought it would be it would be all sort of in-house, you know, that it would be a police officer or a dog that was a special, you know, a, a dog from the canine unit that was trained as a cadaver dog. Right. And I think um, with this, you know, every department is different and has different ways of utilizing uh, experts. I know that in my agency with the Michigan State Police, we have our, our own cadaver dogs. 
but other smaller departments can't afford necessarily to, to have a dog trained or a trainer, and so they use outside sources. And in this case, it happened to be a woman that was actually known to be um, really good at her work. Um, but for whatever reason, she just made that decision and that judgment error to plant bones. <laughs> All right, Ingrid, we are going to break top of the hour here. And on the other side, we'll open up the phone lines and take questions and comments. Hopefully we'll hear from some first responders, police officers with some stories to share, miracles, divine guidance, the paranormal. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling and the shag carpeting, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A hearty how-do to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, 740 kilohertz on the amplitude modulation band and 96.7 on the frequency modulation band right here in Toronto's Liberty Village. Hi all to those of you who are tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and my thanks to Chris Whitting and everyone at Syndication Networks for their continued hard work and support. Hey you, streaming us live on zoomeradio.ca, and those of you checking us out on our YouTube live stream, the YouTube channel is Strange Planet. Please check it out and uh, hit that red sub button. And those of you in the live YouTube chat who join us every week, however, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Retired police detective Ingrid P. Dean stays with us this hour as we continue to discuss the metaphysical and spiritual elements of police work, and she's sharing just some of the 60 true police stories of divine guidance, miracles, and intuition from her book, Spirit of the Badge. And let me give you the phone numbers, because you'll find those are kind of handy when you're calling into a radio program. If you're in the greater Toronto area, and again, we'll, I'd, I'd love to hear from all of you, but in particular, uh, police officers, first responders, 416 360 0740-416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. And toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. And uh, Ingrid, again, once again, how do we get a copy of uh, Spirit of the Badge? Uh, please visit my website at uh, spiritofthebadge.com, and it has my email address and post office box address in order to order the book, Spirit of the Badge. There's a great story in here about a psychic janitor. Tell us about that. Um, that is a great story, and it was provided to me by a uh, police polygraph examiner uh, who helped solve an investigation through the psychic eye of a state police post janitor. And uh, in this case, the um, 
The suspect who was being polygraphed was an individual who was suspect in being involved in the disappearance and probable homicide of a lady. And what's so interesting about this story is the strange uh, synchronistic set of circumstances surrounding the case that involves another detective who happened to be watching the polygraph and gained information through the pretest interview um, about the case that he didn't know about. And uh, it matched uh, several tidbits of information he had received from a psychic janitor way prior to the polygraph, uh, such as the subject's true name and where the body could be buried. So it's a great story, and it uh, it uh, kind of goes step by step of what makes the the um, incident so synchronistic. So, and how how did this janitor? How was he involved in the case, or was he just uh, someone who it came? Some information came to him or her, and they related it, it to the police. I believe it was a it was a male uh, a janitor, and he volunteered the information. He saw uh, one of the troopers who had. Uh, first worked on a case, on the case about a missing woman, and he gave him information like what the suspect's first name was, which was Raul, R-A-U-L. And the um, uh, polygraph uh, examiner uh, was able to figure out that the person he was polygraphing had a, had a different name and the suspect gave his real name to the polygraph examiner, which was Raul, uh, the exact name the janitor had given a few months ago uh, to one of the investigating troopers. So I thought that was very um, interesting, you know, uh, unusual, and um, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences, but... um, uh, this um, this helped. This information helped. And what are what are police officers told, either in police college or or, a, or elsewhere, or afterwards, perhaps by their superiors, etc., uh, about how to deal with tips from people on the let's say on the phone who claim they're psychics? I mean, do do they judiciously take this information down, or do they tend to be dismissive? Or I mean, how are you? told to deal with with uh, tips from people who claim to be psychic in my police academy they said to uh, go ahead and write down that information you never know um i they said nothing it doesn't hurt to to go ahead and take down that information because it can be useful later you know if you can't solve a case and this is your your last resort, you'll have that extra information to look at. Now, some officers are more open to, to doing that and taking down the information, while other officers would rather try to, you know, use uh, just case facts. It just really depends on how open that investigator is, you know, to, to receiving information from a psychic. Every department's different. In my department, they uh, they were open about it, Michigan State Police. They said, go ahead and, and write that down if you get a tip from a psychic. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's say hi to Brian in Toronto. Brian, good evening, good morning, and welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello? Hi there. Is that Brian? No, no, it's Melanie. How are you? Oh, okay. Melanie, Hello. we'll take your call first. Thank you 
so much. Uh, wonderful program as usual. Um, uh, Ingrid, I was wondering, have you ever or have any police officers ever sensed maybe a police officer that you work with or you know of or you run into who may have a bit of a sociopathic personality? Does your intuition help you in that or do you go by other ways or means of detecting someone who's on the police force that may not be um, a Whoops, we lost Melanie. Uh, well, I, I can still ask, answer her question. Um, we're very sensitive to the partners who we work with and our fellow coworkers. And while, you know, whether you call it intuition or gut Lock. instinct, um, if there is um, something that doesn't feel right, you know, about a co- coworker, um, I, I think officers are very in tune to that because we protect each other's back. So, um, you know, if a situation arose where, you know, an officer had a, a gut feeling that there was something, you know, mentally wrong, you know, with a fellow coworker or partner, um, I'm sure that they would mention something to supervision. Mm-hmm. Would um, they be intimidated or afraid for their own safety? Um, to do something uh, if they knew the officer wasn't right or was actually uh, involved in something criminal or committed a criminal act or a lie? Would a police officer be intimidated and afraid of another police officer to do anything about it? I don't think so, mm-hmm. at least not in my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was uh, in... Uh, the Michigan State Police for 22 plus years and whenever we had a problem or a challenge or um, something didn't uh, feel right with a, a fellow co-worker um, we didn't hesitate to say something to supervision mm-hmm. um, because we're, we're, we're protecting each other and we're protecting the public. That's true. So I, I never experienced an officer ever being intimidated or afraid to talk mm-hmm. about um, a, another fellow officer, mm-hmm. um, if there were really problems or something going on that they sensed, they, they would say something. Melanie, thank opinion. you for well, the call. Thank you. thank you for your godly work. Thank you, oh, indeed. You're welcome. It is the Lord's work. Okay. Uh, I, you know, just further to that point, I, I would think, you know, that uh, when you have, I mean, every organization, they have their, you know, a, they have a bad apple. Uh, Absolutely. And because it only takes one, uh, to sort of impugn the reputation of the entire force that, that, uh, as soon as it, that person is sussed out, everyone would sort of circle the wagons and, and make sure that that person is, as being, uh, you know, it, you know, uh, dealt with properly. Exactly. I mean, we have a, a reputation to uphold and, um, our integrity means everything. So, um, uh, yeah, in, in my experience, I never sensed an officer ever being, you know, afraid to talk about something that, you know, could end up being a, a bad or threatening situation. They would they would go to supervision, and usually every agency has a certain protocol for that, rules to follow. All right, now we'll welcome Brian in Toronto. Brian, hi, hi, Richard. Hi. Yeah, I was uh, I was a federal officer. Uh, for uh, over 25 years, and I was suspended from duty, and I went to a mall, and I heard a lot of commotion, 
And it turned out that uh, a person stole some socks and he stabbed the owner, and the owner was tr- uh, trying to chase him. And I, I ran after him, ran down a block, and we got in a struggle. And I arrested him, but I didn't have any handcuffs or anything because I was suspended. Right. And uh, we got in a fight in uh, the loading dock when I when I took him back in the mall with a, with a security guard. And then his hands disappeared. I didn't know where they went, so I threw him with a judo throw. I landed on top of him. I twisted his neck, and I twisted it in a certain way that I could break it. And I just looked at him, and I said, if you struggle with me, I'm going to break your neck. And I, I just said it in my mind. I didn't say it verbally. His Both his eyes widened so you could see the white in the top and the bottom of his eye, and he stopped struggling. And then we found out that he had the knife still in his pocket. It was on his hand. And they had seven types of different DNA on that knife that oh he used my. before. And he also killed a, a, mall, a security guard mall the week before with the same knife. Wow. You had a serial killer yeah. in, your, in your grasp, and you could have been the next victim. That's right. That's right. It's, I just had that feeling. I don't know what I, I was. I was. I had him in the arm lock, and then he struggled, and his, his hands disappeared. And I said, you know, I said, there's something bad going on. I have to do something. And I just put my arm around his, around his neck, and I threw him with the hip toss. I landed on him, and then I squashed him, and I pulled up the neck, and I twisted it. Right. So, yeah, it was, it was just a weird feeling. Like, I was inside of his head, and he was inside my head, but no words. Well, Telepathy. Thank, yes, telepathy. Yeah. Great, great story, Brian. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Okay, well. Yeah, yeah thanks, bravo thanks. for that. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nonverbal you know, I say, communication. I say bravo in, in the sense that people off-duty, you know, um, they don't have to necessarily respond to situations like that. But when I hear stories like that, uh, and officers are off-duty, like at a, at a bank that's being robbed, and, and they do um, heroic acts like that, even though they don't have to. Um, they, they're my heroes. So, yeah. Is there anything about uh, police work in, uh, um, in, in the sense that, you know, the adrenaline is going? I mean, when they're in uh, the thick of it, uh, apprehending somebody or they're being fired upon or they're in a stand-down type situation... Uh, is there anything there, do you think, that maybe contributes to uh, psychic ability or in- intuition? I think that because as officers that we are subjected to such intense moments like that, that it almost makes us a little bit uh, hypersensitive or more sensitive than a normal person. And I do think that it develops in time because of the nature of our work. We become more and more intuitively sensitive with that gut instinct. So um, that, that's a great question. I think that officers are way more sensitive than people think they are. You know, the stereotypical image is that you know, they're rough around the edges and are not sensitive to anything, and they're black and white, and it's simply not true. And that was one of the reasons that I put this project together and compiled this book is because I want the public to see that we don't 
necessarily fit that stereotypical image that the media projects us to be. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, one 740 4740 1-866-740-4740. We're here with Ingrid Dean, retired police detective, over 20 years experience with uh, Michigan police and her book, Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles and Intuition. Would love to hear from first responders and police officers who have perhaps uh, had uh, a paranormal experience on the job or uh, an instance of remarkable synchronicity. Uh, uh, Brian was uh, telling us about his encounter with uh, a serial killer, and and Brian could have ended up, you know, the victim in that case. Uh, The Grim Reaper comes to mind, and there's a story about uh, the Grim Reaper in the book that involves a rookie. Uh, Tell us about the Grim Reaper. Uh, The Grim Reaper is is a heartfelt story, and it's told by a city police officer and regarding um, a young boy named Johnny who um, he ended up talking with after an accident just occurred. Um, the boy was in a wreck, and he was uh, dying, and at the same time, um, people were, were throwing rocks at the officer who was trying to save the boy's life, and you know, shouting out outlandish-type profanities like, you know, you killed him, you did it, you chased him, and that's what caused his death. It was a public that was jumping to conclusions and throwing rocks at him. And um, the boy eventually dies at the scene, but later that night the officer has a dream in which the um, Grim Reaper appears and gives him a special message. So it's also a story about um, the messages we receive in dreams. Can you share that message with us? Um, I don't know the the specific words the the Grim Reaper said to him, but it was the fact that you know um, it was the boy's time to go, and that you know officers like you think that you can you know save everybody. But, you know, indeed, some, sometimes you can't, and it's just time for that person to go. And that was essentially what the Grim Reaper was saying. I would imagine that uh, uh, police officers and, and first responders in general have quite an active dream life, because obviously after a, a, a day on the job that's uh, filled often with violence and death, or, you know, it can be uplifting, but it often is, you know, they see the worst and the best in people. Um, how about for you? I mean, did you find that you are, I mean, you, you must have had just some wild dreams throughout your career as a police officer. I, I am a very active dreamer. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if all officers are like that, but um, my dreams are, are often very adventurous and colorful. And um, it brings to mind uh, a story in the book that I contributed um, that is called The Clairvoyant Dream. And it was on the morning of 9-11. And I was um, uh, sleeping, and the dream was very clear and short. 
the dream was that I was some type of um, a, a leader with a group of people who were like uh, rebellions or rebellers. And um, uh, there were bombs going off, and I was leading the group to a building where I thought that we could hide. And when we went into the building, the building got bombed, and it was all fiery and smoky, and we were all uh, crawling on the floor um, in order to breathe. And what made the the dream so um, kind of traumatizing is that it um, was the first time that I felt like uh, death was inevitable in the dream. I couldn't go up and we couldn't go down the stairs. And so that morning, I am jogging around the track with my sister just before work, and I tell her all about the dream, and I said, what do you think it could mean? And she said, boy, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe it could be like a former lifetime or something like that. And then we, I kind of let it go. And I went to work, and I think it was about... Uh, it was between 8 and 8.20 when the first plane went through the first Twin Tower. And my partner came running in and said, Ingrid, he said, a, a plane just went into a Twin Tower. And then he ran off again. And I thought to myself, you know, I was probably just a, a private pilot, you know, had navigational problems and accidentally, you know, hit a building in New York. And I didn't think anything of it. And then my partner ran back in again and said, Ingrid, he said, a second uh, plane, a jetliner, a second one went into the other building. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the dream that I had earlier um, had a lot of symbolism in it that was consistent with what just happened. And so I ran to the conference room where everybody was seated and watching uh, the Twin Towers burning, and I knew what was going to happen, and that was that the, the buildings were going to come down. And that was because that was the end of my dream, is that that's why I felt death was inevitable in the dream, is because the building toppled on top of us, and I woke up. My word. So it's really strange, you know, I don't know... You know, why don't I have dreams of other terrible traumatic things? Who who knows? But in that particular situation, I think because so many police officers were killed in that, that, that might have been the connection that I had. So I Absolutely. felt like I had stepped into the future. In remarkable, remarkable story. Yeah. Ingrid, stay with us. Spirit of the exactly. Badge, more true police stories on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Canada. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. It's been a while since I've been here in the studio at Zoomerplex. I forgot to hit the the red button that says mic on. <laughs> a learning curve. However, I will persevere. <laughs> Retired police detective Ingrid P. Dean uh, is here, and uh, she is standing by. She'll be with us for the full two hours discussing the metaphysical and spiritual elements of police work. As I say, nice being back in studio. And um, a great meeting my new technical producer, Owen Wolf, in person. My live stream producer is Ryan White. He's running the YouTube live stream. Yes, we are streaming live on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. And you can check it out there, Strange Planet. Be sure to hit that red sub button. We're somewhere north of 16,000 subscribers. Maybe one of these days we'll hit 20. Can you help us? Can you help us get there? Uh, police are often guided by something that's difficult to express in words. Angels, spirit, divine intervention. Even police officers are not always sure. However, the 60 true police stories that make up Ingrid Dean's spirit of the badge leave little room for doubt. We are bigger than we think we are. Every day, Police officers can face life-or-death situations that can call for decisions made in the blink of an eye. There's often no time for reasoning. So, cops learn to trust their guts. They learn to become comfortable with uncertainty. The men and women in blue rely on more than the letter of the law and the facts of the case when they protect and serve. They receive aid from God, dreams, signs, and symbols. But like the rest of us, Officers can also experience paranormal encounters in everyday life. Ingrid P. Dean, as a retired detective sergeant, forensic artist, and 20-plus year police veteran in the Michigan State Police. Her book, Spirit of the Badge, began as a culminating project for her master's degree in transpersonal psychology and related studies. The project grew as more police officers began to share their Extraordinary stories resulting in an informative, delightful collection of exceptional, heartwarming experiences. Ingrid has a BA in art from Wayne State University. She's a professional artist, musician, and writer. She's also a state-licensed polygraph examiner and teaches the art of detecting truth and deception. In addition to Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition, Ingrid is also the author of True police stories of the strange and unexplained. Ingrid, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Terrific. Thanks. I'm so delighted to have you here. And I'm really uh, truthfully enjoying, I say that to the polygraph examiner, truthfully enjoying Spirit of the Badge. (laughs) How long did it take you to compile uh, these stories? When did they first start coming to you? You know, I started um, a culminating project for my master's degree in psychology, and that final project was about uh, special special stories by police officers of, of an exceptional nature. 
And so the whole focus was around uh, exceptional human experiences. And then as the project developed, then um, I got all the chapters um, to a really good book. And um, one of the instructors at the college suggested that, you know, this might be something the public would really like to hear since you're showing the human nature of police officers as well as their, you know, openness and um, receptiveness towards the paranormal. The the metaphysical side, the spiritual side of policing, and yes, the paranormal side. Is this something that police officers talk about uh, amongst themselves on a regular basis, or is it kind of um, kind of hush hush? I think they're becoming more open as the years go by. I think that they're more open now, and we're starting to see uh, television shows that are more of an intuitive. Uh, metaphysical, paranormal nature. Um, but when I first did this project, which would have been in the late uh, late 2000s, it was more hush-hush. You know, it's uh, an area that um, police would only talk amongst themselves with selective uh, friends and partners. Um, I think now that um, it's, it's, they're becoming more open about it and we're, we're finding more publicized uh, stories and encounters. So it's getting better, the openness. Those of us that uh, are not um, uh, police officers, we have our preconceived notions about what police work is like. And you write about something in your introduction called the CSI effect. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I, I think because of a number of the uh, reality shows on television that the public gets a kind of a misconception on what we're really capable of obtaining in terms of evidence uh, to the point that, you know, they expect us to find fingerprints on corduroy hats, you know, and that's impossible. So um, uh, these reality shows almost give a, um, the illusion that we can do anything uh, when we can't. You know, we have rules and protocol to follow, and there's certain evidence that we're able to collect and other evidence that we can't. So that the CSI effect is about um, shows that people watch, and they get that misperception that we're capable of doing more than we can. Right. And and the other um, misconception is that it that it's all about using technology and science and little room for things like intuition or trusting one's gut. Now, when when you come out of a police school, a police college, uh, I mean, you're you're taught you're told about, you know, the, the tools of the trade and proper police procedure and protocol and how to investigate uh, and maintain a crime scene and so forth. But do they ever talk to you about things like intuition or trusting your gut? They talk about trusting your gut. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a more grounded way of saying, you know, intuition, you know, um, you know, thoughts that pass through, you know, your mind. If you, you think something's dangerous or a threat, it probably is. You know, if the hair is standing on the back of your neck, there's, there's a problem. So um, they did, I do remember, 1989, I went to, uh, through recruit school. And they said, pay attention to your gut instinct. And 
um, I did. And I think there were several occasions in my career uh, where that helped me uh, immensely. You know, nothing to really explain why I, I was being threatened or why I felt fear in a, at a certain traffic stop or in a certain house. But that gut feeling, uh, when that happened, uh, I paid attention. And so do a lot of other police officers out there. I want to I want to go back to the early 90s and I think this is your story. This happened to you if I'm not mistaken. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but you were you were uh in the working the 12th precinct in Detroit, correct? No, oh, it wasn't you. Officer. Oh, that wasn't um, you. I think that's a story called an angel shield. That's right. Yes. Yes, that's a, a Detroit police officer um that shared an experience that he had that he considered like an angel encounter or divine intervention. Right. Right. This is a rather harrowing tale that could have ended uh, tragically for the police officer. Just walk us through. Tell us what happened. Well, he he was on patrol. Uh, He was with a new officer that was his partner in the right seat. Uh, There was a a car that went through a red light, and he decided to pursue it when a civilian kind of looked at him and said, you know, aren't you going to stop that car that went through the red light? So he decides to pursue it stops the car, and then there are four uh, hoodlum-like people in the car. Um, And as soon as he stops it, the driver of the uh, vehicle jumps out of the car and starts uh, shooting at him with an AK-40 automatic weapon. And the rest of the story is about what he sees and perceives as those bullets are hitting his windshield. Um, And this is what he believes to be an angel encounter because he sees light and all of these bullets going through the windshield. And um, I believe he opens his door and steps out to to be in a better position. And he never gets hurt. Um, Somehow he uh, escapes all those bullets and survives. Right. Those bullets should have gone right through the windshield. And I think he writes they should have hit him in the mouth. Absolutely. I mean, it was an it was like an AK-40 automatic weapon, so there were a lot of bullets flying. And they just seemed to deflect off the windshield and bounce straight up. Exactly. And he got out of the squad car, and he looked in, and, and the squad car seemed to fill with this ball of, of brilliant light. Yes. Yes, and, it's, it's, and it was like all in slow motion uh, when he described it to me as well, which is not uncommon when you're in a really traumatic situation where you've only got seconds to respond, you know, the, the way your perception works, it seems like everything slows down. So um, he was adamant that there was a, a huge light uh, that was surrounding the car, and he felt protected. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering how a police officer in that situation files a report. Does he does he put everything in that report? What does he? How does he do that? How did that police officer end up telling that story to his superiors? My understanding is he was selective in who he told about the the metaphysical quality of it. He didn't talk about uh, the light, you know, in the official report. He just simply stated, you know, um, the facts of what happened, how he stopped the car. You know, the bullets were flying and that um, nobody was injured. Uh, But 
he knew what happened and what his perception of is what he thought was divine intervention. And of course, here, you know, we don't mix religion with, you know, um, <laughs> police work or, you know, belief systems, you know, um, with the facts when we're writing a report. And what about his partner? Did he, what did he witness? Um, I, I think it was a she, ah. and I think that she um, saw part of it and that she eventually um, went for cover other than the vehicle. So she actually uh, ran from, from the vehicle. So um, uh, he shares a little bit of that as well uh, in the story. And, and and how did that end up changing that particular uh, police officer? Did it uh, did it change the way that he policed? Did it change the way that he dealt with with the public that he was sworn to protect and serve? He he told me that he felt so protected um, spiritually that he uh, trusted um, his his um, trusted God. You know, trusted his um, his spiritual side uh, for the rest of his career. So it, it did have an effect on him because he survived something that he he didn't believe he should have. So um, it changed his spiritual outlook uh, on life. That's what he said. There was a uh, there's a story in the book about a police officer that is stationed in uh, I believe it's Skagway, Alaska. Yes. Uh, and, um, well, just, just yeah, tell us what a, happened to this. Uh, Spirits of the North. Yes. Yes, and the officer um, was from Skagway, and he shares his encounters with ghosts at the Skagway Police Department and all of the strange sounds and noises and tricks that the ghosts uh, were playing on him on the night shift. So there's a little bit of humor in that story, as well as his um, uh, his perspective, you know, of what happened. And he was a relatively new officer to the police department at that time. And uh, unbeknownst to him, most all of the police officers knew about the ghosts, but didn't tell him about it. So um, uh, it's a great story because it, it, there's some humor in it, too. And what was the experience? What happened to this officer at the uh, the police station at night? Oh, there were there were doors shutting each time he would, um, you know, hear sounds and nobody was there. And there were steps that he could hear, um, uh, I believe, walking above him. And there was nobody else in the station except for him. Um, but, you know, he still was guarded, and he would go check these sounds, and, of course, nothing was there. So um, uh, it, it's, a, it's fun to read. And, and I understand at one point, uh, he, I mean, he admitted he was so fearful uh, because this door, uh, which he tested, he would close it, it would latch properly, and it, and it wouldn't open, and then it would fly open. And uh, he actually went out into the hallway with his gun drawn. Yes, and that's, yes, yeah, he did. And I think it, it took him time to get used to those sounds and come to um, uh, the understanding that they, they weren't going to go away, uh, and they did not. Uh, apparently, this particular police station is haunted, and uh, they're still there, from what I'm told. Hmm. So, um, 
whenever new officers come on board, um, he says that uh, they kind of, they don't tell the new officer about what goes on there, and they learn for themselves. Um, so they, it, yeah, there's, I, I believe they even brought somebody in to try to um, get rid of the ghosts, but it didn't work. To exercise the police station? Yes. Are they fearful, not fearful, but somewhat maybe embarrassed uh, that, not embarrassed, that's not the right word either, but apprehensive that these stories might get out, get out into the public? Because again, we think of, of, of police officers as being very stoic, being, you know, no nonsense, just the facts and so forth. And then all of a sudden we're seeing this other side, thanks to you. Well, it, you know, and it's a good... Uh, good question, because I do think that, you know, police officers work really hard. They serve the public. They have to testify in court, write accurate reports. So they don't want to look like quacks. So they're not going to tell anybody the kinds of experiences that they have if they're, you know, of a metaphysical nature. They're careful you know, selective of, of who they talk to and make sure that that person is open, you know, to, um, you know, those sorts of exceptional human experiences because they have dignity. You know, we, we, we work very hard and uh, um, we want to be respected and we want to be of service. So sometimes if you tell people these sorts of stories who are, who are not open, to the metaphysical or the paranormal, then um, it, it backfires. Um, none of us want to look bad. We, all, we always want to look our best and be our best. And when you started soliciting these stories, I mean, how did you do that? And was it difficult to pry these stories out of your fellow men and women in blue? Um, maybe at first uh, it was a little bit uh, difficult, but after I explained why I was collecting the stories and how I was going to honor those stories and write them up and allow them to read those stories before they're published to make sure they're in their exact words, uh, they were okay with it. Uh, in fact, the, the first book is called Spirit of the Badge, and that's the independently published book. And then a couple years later, a publisher picked up the book, and they republished it, and they called it uh, uh, True Stories of the Strange and Unexplained. And uh, we, we changed about 30% of the stories in that book, but it's primarily the same. And all of the officers were willing to give their names and the police departments that they worked for. So uh, they, they were sticking to their story because um, they knew it happened and that it was the truth. So um, the first book, Spirit of the Badge, I put all of the officers' names in the front of the book to keep them relatively anonymous because I, it was protective. You know, I was also a police officer and hesitant uh, in the beginning to put my name with my stories right? because so- I didn't want to look like a quack either. Right, so the, 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 the names are listed first, so we don't know which story to attach to which police officer, correct? Exactly. Exactly. But then, um, again, once that uh, was picked up by a publisher and republished, the publisher wanted the names of the officers and their police de- uh, departments with the story. 
And I was so surprised but happy that maybe only one or two officers declined to do that. Ingrid, All I'm going to take... the others said, sure, put my name with the story because it happened. Terrific. Ingrid, yeah. we're going to take a quick time out. Spirit of the Badge, 62 police stories of divine guidance, miracles, and intuition, right here in The Conspiracy Show, back with more. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And welcome back. And just a quick programming note. Next week on the program, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will make her regular monthly visit, and Rosemary has edited and compiled a, uh, a brand new book entitled Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. So we'll talk Bigfoot. That's in the second hour. In the first hour uh, next week, Los Angeles a Psychic to the Stars, Sloan Bella will be back. Uh, always um, an interesting conversation when Sloan joins us. And uh, she'll talk about, among other things, uh, certain satanic societies within Hollywood. Uh, where she works. That's next week on The Conspiracy Show. We are here with Ingrid Dean, author of Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. And I wanted to talk to you about a, um, I'm not sure where in, in the United States uh, the Bowers Harbor Inn is, but it's uh, it apparently was uh, had a, quite a reputation as being a haunted restaurant. Uh, tell us about that story. First of all, where is the Bowers Harbor Inn? Uh, it's in Traverse City, Michigan. Ah, okay. Yeah, and uh, it uh, this story was provided by uh, a young officer who was responding to a burglar alarm call uh, at the restaurant and didn't know about the fact that it was uh, haunted. And as I recall, um, uh, she goes inside to do the normal... Uh, inspections to make sure that uh, nobody's in there so her gun is drawn and as I recall the ghost of the restaurant makes all sorts of uh, strange sounds and noises and uh, plays tricks on the officer um, but eventually even locks her uh, inside a room uh, at the inn when she's the only one in there and her partner is on the outside of the building so um, uh, she eventually gets out, but that's that's what the story's about, and she talks about her experience um, going to this uh, alarm call. And of course, it's a midnight shift. Is that? I mean, is it sounds like a cliche, you know? And and this happened to be kind of a dark and stormy night to boot. But is is that when a lot of the the, the paranormal stuff happens on the midnight shift, or can it happen at any time of day? Uh, any time of day, I found that um, I think they become naturally a little bit more spooky when it's at nighttime and you don't have uh, light, you know, um, helping you to see. But that actually the the incidents can happen any time of day. And how about for you? I mean, we haven't talked about about you and your experiences. I mean. Uh, I don't know if any of these are yours in the book because, the, again, the copy that I have, all the the officers that involve, involved are mentioned up front. They're not attached to any particular right, story. Right, right. Um, one of my stories is called uh, Karmic Happenings, and um, I um, remember to this day um, about stopping a vehicle with a burned-out taillight, and uh, the driver jumps jumps out of the car, and he's saying, you know, don't arrest me, don't arrest me. 
I have a warrant for being suspended, but I have a date tonight, <laughs> a date with a woman. It's my first date in years, and I just know that this woman is the one, like like the one he's going to marry. So um, he was. He, I just remember him uh, shaking, and he said, "You know, if if we don't go out tonight, she'll never date me again. If you take me to jail." You know, the life that I wish for will never happen, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, as officers, we hear, you know, a lot of stories. And in this case, I'm thinking, well, you know, he's either being really truthful because of his disposition and his behavior, or he is like one fabulous liar, and I should just let him go just because of his excellent (laughs) Hollywood acting. But long story short, I do um, sense that he's telling the truth, and I simply let him go. Um, I still give him a ticket um, for the suspended license, of which I have that authority and option. And I I tell him to leave the car on the side of the road and just uh, get a taxi. And of course, he was more than willing. So then two years later, on an unrelated traffic stop uh, in a completely different town that's hundreds of miles away, I stop a possible drunk driver, and uh, I am by myself uh, with no backup, and the driver resists arrest because he is obviously drunk, and we get into a fight, and we start rolling around in oh the my. Michigan snow, and at five foot two, 128 pounds, uh, I'm losing the fight. Oh, dear. So, so then this big semi-truck stops behind my uh, patrol car, and the truck driver hops out of the truck and assists me. So I'm able to to cuff the person and um, place him in the back of the patrol car uh, with the truck driver's help. And then the truck driver kind of turns to me and he says, you know, you don't remember me, do you? Well, come to find out, I I didn't remember him at first until he explained, uh, but come to find out he's the man that I had stopped uh, two years ago, who had a date, you know, and I had let him go. And he um, was so happy, and he said, you know, I really actually married that woman, and I got my driver's license back, and I went to truck driving school. So um, it, it was just a nice heart-centered story, and it's of kind of a synchronistic nature right. in which, you know, what are the odds you know, of that same person from a traffic stop two years prior, uh, seeing me rolling in the snow with somebody um, so far away from where he was stopped, you know, a different part of the state. The Cosmic so Court I, I is now was, in um, session. Yeah. <laughs> the Cosmic Tumblers. Unbelievable. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I, I remember that. Uh, I'll remember that forever. Do you believe in coincidences? Well... Yes, but no, I, I, I feel like um, there are meaningful coincidences, you know, as um, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, uh, so um, amply put, that we have meaningful coincidence, coincidences that occur with no causal-type relationship, um, yet later on we can find them all to be very meaningful. And that's what that's what the definition of synchronicity is. They're uh, meaningful coincidences. Right, right. Now, after that 
altercation or that rather that that uh, episode uh did you find yourself maybe using more discretion when it came to let's say traffic stops and and uh, and, and listening to people's stories and then maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt well it's it's interesting i think that the public has this kind of misconception that everything is very black and white and that the decisions that we make as police officers you know are rules cut in stone and that's simply not true we actually do have discretion and and we can make judgment calls in certain situations and in answer to your question I think it was a realization that um, I really do have the authority to discern and make decisions and not be so black and white about my decisions. So, uh, yes, I, I think that because I was a younger officer at that time and realized that uh, that decision was a good decision, um, I became more confident um, uh, to use my judgment as well as, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, practicing law, the laws and, and making right. sure that people are following the rules. As you were telling that story, and because I, I read the story, I knew where it was headed, but even still, hearing you say it, that, that uh, telltale shiver went up my spine, uh, which can sometimes be, you know, caused by sort of a, a scary or a frightening episode. But in this case, it's, a, it, as you say, it's a very heart-centered, uh, uplifting story. But I still got that tingle. Do you, is that part of intuition? Do you get a tingle up your spine? Or is there a sort of a physical response that's associated with trusting your gut or intuition? That's a great question. Because, you know, intuition can be uh, defined in so many ways. And for me, um, it's not necessarily uh, a physical feeling to go with it. It's the way the my thoughts travel uh, through my mind, and when there is a, a thought that comes through that doesn't seem to um, fit with anything else, I I look at it. You know, it catches my attention when I suddenly, you know, think of something that doesn't seem to fit in the picture, and I listen, and I respond, or I don't respond to it. So. That's how intuition works for me. It's almost like being the watcher and watching your thoughts and feelings uh, traveling through your consciousness and paying attention to the ones that are different. Hmm. Now, you're a forensic artist, or you were yes. a forensic artist. There's a there's a, f- a fascinating story in here about a forensic or, uh, artist, uh, and this person had trained at the... Um, uh, in facial rec- reconstruction at the FBI Academy in Quantico. Did you study at Quantico as well? or? Uh, yes, I studied at the uh, FBI Academy and then also um, in Chicago at Northwestern University. So this particular forensic artist um, had quite an interesting uh, story. It, can, it, it, it deals with uh, being presented with a box that contained a human skull. Uh, that was pulled from a river. Uh, talk to talk to me about that story. Uh, yes, this um, this 
story originated from a uh, Michigan State Police uh, trooper, and she um, has a skull that has been sitting on the shelf for quite some time and decides to do a a facial uh, reconstruction, uh, which has to do with using clay and tissue depth markers in order to develop a face to identify uh, the skull. Um, the story that's shared by this officer, uh, it talks about an unsolved case. Um, and yes, the skull was dredged out of the Clinton River, which is near Mount Clemens, Michigan. And she shares about how she ended up solving this case um, that was regarding a, a missing young man. Ingrid, I'm going to jump in here. Pardon the interruption. Sure. We'll uh, step away just for a short uh, time out to take care of some business and come back and continue to talk about sure. the skull in the river. Ingrid Dean, author of Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. We'll also take your calls at the top of the hour. Questions, comments, perhaps you can share a story or two if you're um, a member of the uh, the police uh, force, the local constabulary, as they say, the authorities. We'll take a quick time out back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. From Yeti to Nessie, pyramids to pandemics, all is revealed on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, welcome back. Ingrid Dean, retired police detective, is with us, 20-plus years on the force. Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. We were talking about this um, uh, forensic artist presented with a uh, the skull that was dredged out of the Clinton River in Michigan uh, back in, uh, I guess, 1992. And it was this uh, trooper's job or forensic artist's job to reconstruct, I guess, this face or to at least, you know, try and f- f- determine the identity because there was no, there was no other body parts. Uh, there wasn't even, I think it was even missing its lower jaw. This was all they had to work with was this, this skull. And, uh, you talk about how she, or the case was solved, uh, through a, a young girl. Yes. And the, um, um, the face that she develops on the skull is of a, of a young man. And, um, when the officer shares the story, she shares it both, um, uh, scientifically and how she also used her, uh, intuition, um, with reference to the facial re- reconstruction. And you're right, it was a lone cranium, um, without, uh, the jaws. So it was like half a skull that she had to work with, but the upper teeth were were still there. And so what she ends up doing, she does the reconstruction as best she can without a lower jaw, and then she takes the initiative to look back at various cases where people uh, were missing, and she finds one that she um, feels really fits. Um, what this person looks like. It's not exact, but it's possible. And she sees the teeth um, uh, in the photograph of the missing person. And she thought, you know, um, I can work with this. 
And so eventually she um, um, takes the skull to a dentist and um, uh, eventually is able to solve the case with the, the, the dentist's help. But again, had to take a leap of faith and rely on, on intuition. Yes. And, you know, there's certain aspects when, when we do facial reconstructions that are um, intuitive. Um, uh, you know, the, the smoothness of the skin, um, we have to kind of base that on the lifestyle, uh, lifestyle of that person, what, you know, uh, we think, you know, the lips look like because there's certain parts that... Um, are, are never going to be exact in a facial reconstruction. And I know with this, with this officer, she was very good at her work, and she had several uh, wonderful uh, cases like this where she used her intuition and was able to find that person based now, on the skull reconstruction that she made. Now, I've interviewed countless psychics and intuitives and mediums and remote viewers and so forth over the years on this program. And many of them say that they have worked with police departments, but it's always sort of on the lowdown because police departments, they say, you know, they don't want it to get out that they're they're working with a a psychic to find a missing person or to solve a murder, but they sometimes will go to them as a last resort because, you know, all the leads have dried up and, it, and the, the, the case has gone cold. Right. Um, but it, it seems like, uh, you know, after reading this book and, and listening to you, uh, th- there would be kind of that a more willingness to, to, you know, to work with psychics, given that many police officers are using their own intuition. Uh, Talk to me about, you know, their, their willingness to work with psychics. Does it happen more, more than we think? I think it does. Um, I think there are more officers open to that than the public thinks. And that you're absolutely right. When a case goes cold and there is absolutely nothing else to work with, why not work with a psychic? It could give you some ideas, you know, stir your thinking about the case. Uh, even if they're inaccurate, um, it can't hurt, you know, to try. So I know that in my department, um, we've utilized psychics. We just kind of keep it under our hat. We don't, um, you know, advertise it, you know, when we seek, seek that kind of help. But uh, I've always believed that... Um, it's useful. You know, it can't hurt. And then we've come up with um, a situations where cases got solved, you know, using the ideas and visions of a good psychic. Now, you know, it came out uh, maybe a decade or more ago that the, the U.S. Defense Department was trying to train uh, psychic spies. They had a remote viewing program. And I'm, I'm wondering if any police officers maybe take it upon themselves to try and train as remote viewers. Do you know of any? I don't know, but I heard of that. You know, I, I read about that um, pertaining to, um, you know, the federal government uh, utilizing a remote viewers. But um, I don't know of any officers who ever volunteered or were sought out, but... Um, 
Um, I know they had a number of remote viewers, and I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if some of them were police officers. We're going to take another time out. This was a short segment. When we come back, I want to talk about a fascinating case uh, that involved the tragic deaths of some uh, snowmobilers that went under the ice. It's called the Bone Lady, and Ingrid Dean will share that with us next on The Other Side when The Conspiracy Show continues. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.